In Practice is brought to you by East Street Arts, a charity working to secure better livelihoods for artists and its neighbours. This first series will focus on artist-led spaces and the often invisible connections between them, local institutions, communities and authorities, with the aim to interrogate these connections to better understand their use in relation to growth, sustainability and fostering good support structures for local artists. In this episode, Dr Laura King from the University of Leeds chairs an exploration of all things arts and health with Leeds-based artist Ellie Harrison, Artistic Director of the Grief Series, and Mick Ward, formerly of Leeds City Council, now Associate at Nurture Development, Health Innovation Lab, and trustee at PAFRAS. So, hi Ellie, hi Mick. We're here at East Street Arts. My name's Laura King and I'm a historian based at the University of Leeds where I work on the history of remembrance and death and things like that over the last couple of centuries in Britain. And we're here today to talk a little bit about arts and health, I think in really interesting ways. I'm here, I guess, as a long-term collaborator with Ellie Harrison and the Grief Series project. We've done everything together from um, exploring how food, arts, health, grief and history um, come together in the form of a picnic with lovely restaurant, The Swine That Dines, mm -hmm. to the usual wrangling with funders and admin and bureaucracy that comes with any collaboration, it seems, these days. So um, I'm joined here today by Mick Ward and Ellie Harrison, and I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves We'll come to Mick first. Mick, can you tell us a bit about yourselves and your work in health commissioning at, at Leeds City Council, your background? Yeah, so hi, thanks for the invite. Uh, yeah, so I'm Mick, Mick Ward. Uh, I suppose I'm here for a couple of reasons, one of which is I'm very much a Leeds lad, born and bred in Leeds, love it, probably through most of my adulthood, particularly later on, have engaged with the arts and cultural scene in Leeds at various levels. I worked my entire life in adult social care in Leeds City Council, uh, but laterally a, a senior job across both health and care. And within that, I became particularly interested around the interconnectivity between art and culture and health and wellbeing, which led to me uh, helping set up the Leeds Art and Health and Wellbeing Network. And I'll probably come back later on in the show to that and what it was about and why we went down that road. Great, thanks Mick. And Ellie, to come to you, Ellie Harrison, a fantastic Leeds-based artist. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the Grief Series, the project that you've been working on for a number of years now? Yeah, so I'm Artistic Director of the Grief Series and in 2010 I did a show about bereavement and what I wasn't prepared for was that people would come and share their stories with me. So I kind of accidentally became a bit of a grief magnet and, and people were coming up to me after the show saying it really reminded me of when I lost my partner or my parents or my child. Yeah, I decided that there needed to be more social, in some ways non-clinical spaces to talk about grief. Uh, and so initially I set out to make seven projects about grief and I thought it would take me about seven years. Um, but actually what happened was communities kind of picked it up and ran with it and I ended up working in primary schools, doing projects about grief with them working with different faith communities, doing papers for academics in Paris. 
And so actually the whole body of work will, by the time it's completed, I'm completing it next year, it will have taken 13 years. So a little bit longer than I planned, but a kind of beautiful accident because of just how much communities, I guess, wanted to talk. Um, and it's been a real privilege listening to people, everyone from five-year-olds right up to 95-year-olds talking about loss. All of the projects are co-authored with communities. And I guess we kind of work across arts, health and academia, really. And so previous projects, we made a fun fair about anger called The Unfair that popped up in town squares and parks. Um, we made an illustrated plan your own funeral kit called The Crossing, and that's gone out to primary schools and care homes across the city. Um, and in fact, Mick was a really big advocate of The Crossing. Um, so that's kind of one of the ways that our paths have crossed. Yeah, it's, I guess it's been quite an expansive body of work where I collaborate with funeral directors and fairground sign writers and chefs and death doulas and five-year-olds and world leaders in palliative care. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's really interesting to find how people have really enjoyed those spaces to, to talk about grief and to talk about their experiences of death and remembering their loved ones. Mm. Yeah, it's surprisingly joyful, I think. And I think at its heart, that's because people are telling me about people they love. And that has meaning, even if there's complexity and rage and, you know, a, a cocktail of feelings. Um, there's a kind of accelerated intimacy where we tend to talk about the things that really matter quite quickly. And that's really meaningful. So what are the, I guess those are the advantages and exciting possibilities of your work. What are the challenges in engaging communities around the themes of grief and we've gone straight in there with death, grief, mourning. What are the challenges around that? Actually, the challenge is never really getting people talking. You only need to give people a tiny bit of permission and then they want to tell you about their nan or, you know, their uncle or their best mate. So it's not really, the challenge is not engaging people. The challenge is sustaining work. So we've never been in receipt of any core funding. So we're always bouncing from project to project. And with a subject as sensitive as death, actually the biggest challenge is holding the endings for participants. So when we apply for funding, we're constantly asked, how are you going to engage communities? But the conversation that we never seem to have is, how do you ethically disengage communities? How do you make really good endings? And I feel like when I look at the funding pots that exist, um, a lot of it is about starting up new things or it's all very front-loaded. What's the new sparkly thing? And actually, what I would really like to see is an acknowledgement that good endings are a beautiful thing. And actually, if we have really good endings, we leave the creative landscape fertile for better beginnings. I think we find that in academia as well. There's a lot of talk about leaving the field when you're do working with participants, but it's often never properly resourced, right? It's the same problem, isn't it? That it's never resourced to make sure that the well-being of the participants and the people who are facilitating, researchers or artists, is really well looked after. That's a real issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think all of the people that I collaborate with and, and me all go above and beyond because we want to make a really good experience for participants. But 
there's a question, you know, when you're sustaining a body of work over 13 years, how realistic that is. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge. Thanks. So Mick, to bring you in here um, with your background of working in this health sector, particularly in the council, what do you think the challenges have been for you of working with artists or non-health partners or different kinds of communities? It's probably worth starting with a bit of background about why I became interested in this. So in my role, I was the deputy director of health and care, but I was responsible for commissioning. And that was all those big traditional services that you might think about in terms of the world of social care and health. So care homes, home care, community equipment, mental health day support, learning disability support, and so on. You know, I'd cross a whole range of client groups. And of course, core to that was making sure that people got really, really good services. But of course, people's lives are way bigger than just services. And I think one of the problems in both health and care is that they only see that person or even that bit of that person around service. And me and a few other colleagues start to think a bit broader about people's lives. And that led to things like the work on dementia-friendly leads, which became age-friendly leads, starting to think about much more about communities, neighbourhood, society's support for people with care and support needs. And of course, culture and art is a key element within that. Uh, and the things that really pushed me towards it, I suppose, four things. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do a bit of a list. So one of which is I had come across people working in health and care who saw the potential of working with artists or doing some cultural stuff, but it was very limited. Either they didn't know how to engage with artists or what the breadth was out there, or they just think, oh, we'll have a mural in the dining room. You know, it's very much that sort of level. At the same time, I came across some really dedicated artists who wanted to do good work around or engaging with health and well-being, but similar, didn't know how to pull that together. And then there was a third element, which was a real sweet spot in the middle of people doing work focused around health and well-being, but from an artistic perspective. And Ellie's work in the Grief series, I think it's a really great example of that. And then there was a fourth strand, which is probably a thread, maybe that runs through it, which was could we much more nurture, celebrate and expand work by people with care and support needs, whether that's people with learning disability, older people, mental health, art, and so on. So it's just a real desire to move beyond the, the notion that services are the answer and think much broader within society. And this one was a particular strand around art and culture and its engagement in health and well-being. That's so interesting. Sorry, I, you didn't ask me to jump in, but I am. Um, I think there's a lack of visibility sometimes between artists that are doing all this grassroots on the ground work with communities and healthcare providers they sort of we don't know how to make ourselves visible to each other and so actually Mick you've been very good at linking and brokering those introductions and making those two communities visible to each other which is a joy and particularly through the Leeds Arts Health and Wellbeing Network that's been been really wonderful for artists having a safe place to ask questions and the same thing for healthcare practitioners as well. So. And there's clearly one of the things that really showed there was a need and a desire for it. There was a national government report called Creative Health, which sort of sold the benefits of our culture for health and wellbeing. 
which I quite liked. I mean, I think it slightly oversold it, and I might come back to that later, but there was certainly potential in it. And I think there was some very loose talk about like a regional network, but Leeds is big enough of itself. There's just so much going on. So once I'd heard about this, I just contacted a couple of people I knew who were artists and said, do you think there's some interest in this? I knew enough people in the world of health and care to get some interest there was pointed towards Leeds University and the work that sits under the Cultural Institute. And so having had an initial discussion, we just set up an initial meeting. Uh, didn't know how big to do it. We had a reasonable size space, I think for about 50, 60 people. It sold out in an hour on Eventbrite. So we sort of thought, oh, there might be some interest in this. And, and it's just grown from there from some really great individuals and some organisations really thinking, we'll put a bit of time and effort but it's just about collaboration. You know, the network itself has virtually no funding. It's just hosting the chance for people to get together about common interest. That's really interesting. So basically there's just this sort of untapped potential and it's, it's kind of creating or expanding that sweet spot that you talked about or using networks to increase that visibility. So that sweet spot becomes more accessible to more, more and more people. So were the challenges within that? What were the kind of big difficulties? And they're culturally very different types of organisations. People work at different paces, people have a different focus, people have maybe a different expectation of what might come out of summer. I mean, I'll pick a couple of things that are probably more the obvious extreme end. So you still get some people who do think, oh, we'll get an artist to come and do a mural and they'll do it for no because we're doing it again. And you have to say, no, this is that person's role. And then at the same time, I think people have to recognise that in the world of health and well-being, you do have people, you know, with long-term conditions, people with different levels of function. So that can be quite hard. I think the two other ones, and these are both things that I like, but I think part of the network was challenging them. So one of which is, I know when we were talking about this early on, and you still get it, people think it's about art therapy, which it's not. This is about celebrating art sometimes by people with care and support needs or certainly engaging that issues. If you're disabled and you're not, it doesn't have to be therapy. It's just why you do art. So we never particularly went down the road of art therapy. And I think the second one, which is a slight critique of community arts, in that often it is a really skilled artist, but sort of parachuting a bit into a community and they might work to engage with that community and the good ones do that well and that's fantastic and there's some great examples of that in Leeds but I think what we were talking about is rather than a community being having art done to them could you find 30 artists that live in a community so you know one of the work we did was with some community builders who were not artistic but their role was to find artists. And some of those people themselves may have never identified as an artist until somebody says, no, that stuff you do is great. Let's find a way of showing it to other people. And there's been some great stuff that's come out of that, particularly the working leads around asset-based community development, which does a whole load of other stuff. But particularly, I think, bringing people together and unifying people that culture and art with a sense of purpose has been really strong. I've got I've got three thoughts. Can I butt in? Well, Sorry, Laura. So one thing is about yeah. In the grief series, we we are really transparent with participants about setting up what is therapeutic and what is therapy. You know, so I say going for a run, going to the pub with your mates, 
cooking a really nice meal might all be therapeutic, but it's a completely different thing to having therapy, whether that's formal art therapy or clinical therapy. Um, because I think sometimes as an artist, you can feel pressured to be providing a service that you're not trained to provide. So I find it really important to be kind of transparent about that. And then I suppose there was something else you were saying about the pace of work, which I wanted to pick up on, because I think that is one of the big challenges with health, is that they quite often want artists to start work on a project, turn it around and wrap it up with an incredibly short amount of time. And for example, I have chronic fatigue, I'm disabled, I can't work at that kind of pace. Um, and I think if you're going to make things that are co-authored with communities that have a range of illnesses or caring responsibilities or life challenges, then that kind of hurry sickness means that artists can't do that kind of work. And then I guess the, the last thing that it made me think of is about how we think about artists as not being in their communities. We go, oh, this artist wants to do this, but it'd be great if we could find someone in the community. And you think, the, the artist lives in the community too. <laughs> so yeah, I, d I don't know. I'm just interested in that um, differentiation. And I do it too. I fall into the same trap. But yeah, I guess I just wanted to jump in and agree with you that those quick turnarounds and that kind of focus on art therapy can be slippery slopes. I think there's something really interesting coming out there of treating people as as wholes right that an artist mm. isn't just an artist they're not just a professional artist they're a person who lives in Leeds or wherever they live and likewise someone who's engaging with the health services aren't just a patient they are a whole person who who might consider themselves an artist they might do art as a hobby um, but it's kind of considering someone as a whole person isn't it and seeing them as multi-dimensional not just pigeonholing people into you are the artist you are the community person you are the health person in this in this kind of setting I don't know what you both think about that yeah I think that is really key and that obviously is broader than just that person connecting with art and culture there's other things that you'd be wanting that person to connect with but I think that is critical uh, and interestingly in the same way you're talking about artists do live in communities. We did a similar thing with people who worked in health and care, just reminding them that they're all patients as well. Uh, they all live in communities. You know, I, I wrote a blog which became actually a bit of a policy thing in Leeds about really thinking about where you live and where you work and really understanding those neighbourhoods and communities because of the potential of that support for individuals. But there is also a bit of a contradiction in that one of the reasons we push this a bit further is that artists do come with a skill and we were particularly interested in high quality art, which sounds a bit weird because obviously that's very uh, judgmental. No, what's the word? Yeah, up to people to choose whether they like things, isn't it? But I'd, I'd historically, you know, you'd come across, this is going to sound terribly dismissive, but we called it day centre art, <laughs> you know, where somebody was just an activity organising. And I used to manage a day centre, so I know this well. I would an activity organ, I would just get people together, do some crap drawing. Whereas even back in the day when I did manage this service, we stopped doing that. And in fact, you know, took the money we had from that. We had to Constantina it a bit, but did bring in artists to lead work. I, you know, that was my, one of my first engagements with Ellie, was seeing what was happening in the Grief series and seeing the quality of that work. And then in particular, one of the things that, why the crossing was so well loved was the quality of the product. 
you know, people can see it and touch it and feel it. And that was a really great thing. And I think there was a bit of a lesson from that in bringing these people together, sometimes to help like joint bids together. So you'd have enough money to properly resource quality pieces of work. I think, yeah, I think there can sometimes be a misconception that the process is warm or the art's good. And I don't think it's as simple as having to pick a lane. Like I've always said that the work on the grief series, I want it to have um, the aesthetic rigor of contemporary art, but the warmth of community arts practice. Um, and I think participants get way more out of the final product if it looks really polished and really beautiful and something that they can feel proud about and go, yeah, that does deserve to be, you know, in a fancy gallery or it does deserve to be here because it looks really great. So, yeah, I, com I completely ag agree. But I think quality, yeah, quality takes time, doesn't it? Mm. And it takes trust, establishing trust with your participants you know participants are really smart and they can smell bullshit a mile off so you have to kind of take the time um to, for them to grill you and decide whether they want whether you're good enough you know whether they want to be part of it that's a great way of thinking about it ellie that the the process of engaging with art or doing art can be beneficial but so viewing or experiencing or engaging with a beautiful skilled product you know artistic output at the end you know it's the process of doing art and the process of experiencing art and the high quality art itself are both important I wonder if you could both kind of reflect on that a bit and, and think about what are those benefits what are those benefits of arts and health for of bringing those two things together what's yeah. the benefits for the different kind of audiences or people you've worked with I'll start with the end product and then Ellie can come in on a broader and then I might come out. Because there is something when you've, you know, moved towards the end of the thing about the product at the end. And I think the two great things that I've seen in that on the quality end of it, one of which is ownership. You know, I did that. I was involved in that. It's just an incredibly powerful thing for people. But the second is impact. So certainly, you know, around stuff around care and support needs. And it's similar to people with other protected groups and other equality campaigns. You know, visibility is really important and challenging people's historic preconceptions. So you have something like the grief series, challenging people's view of what people should be like at the end of life or what their family should be like. Or I remember, you know, one of the first, I'm talking a long time ago, projects I was involved in through, you know, this sort of resource centre I managed, we brought in quite a skilled photographer, had a bit of money to do that, who produced these huge 20-foot-high pictures of young disabled women, which went up in Bradford when it was the Photography Museum. And just the impact of these people who historically were literally looked down at by everybody because they sat in wheelchairs, suddenly towering over you as you walked into the gallery was a really powerful piece. Uh, and I've seen a number of the pieces of work that have come out through this uh, collaborations saying quite powerful things around disability or learning disability or aging that has the value in itself. Ellie? I think it's about bearing witness and so many of the moments that are feel most important are often private particularly around death and end of life and so sometimes you feel like you just want someone to have heard it and to have gone, yeah, that happened. It's not just something that you have to carry around. And I think 
I think death and end of life and bereavement come with a lot of residual shame in our society. And so the act of using celebration and the act of using beauty can kind of be a tool for unshaming, maybe. And I tend to think of beauty, I mean, quite often people think of beauty as something fluffy, but I kind of see it as an emotional accessibility ramp into a difficult subject that allows the people that have made it to feel really proud because it's beautiful and people that have never really thought about bereavement or end of life feel that it's approachable it's an approachable subject you know I think we did a museum in a caravan me and Laura worked on a project called journey with absent friends and the caravan you know was we kind of renovated it in a 1960s style and it it was just it was a beautiful thing to look at well I think now of course I did I made it but um, yeah, I don't think some, particularly some of the older men that ended up talking to me about grief, they didn't come and say, hi, Ellie, um, my wife died. They came and went, oh, you've done a great paint job on that caravan. And then slowly, slowly, the conversation built and then they would tell me that they used to go on caravan holidays with their wife. So the beauty was there as a tool to unshame them, to help them say it's okay to have these conversations and it's not just you feeling this walking around with this terrible weight. There's lots of people that have had similar experiences and you can go in that caravan and you can read other people's memories. So, yeah, I think I think at its most powerful, it can be a tool for bringing us closer together. And that closer together was really one of the key benefits in the health and well-being world. Because what you have there is quite often within that service land, people are together where you know, whether full time if you're in a care home or quite a few days a week if you're in a day service and other things, you know, delivered by the health system, you can be a long time in hospital. And the reality is they can be really dull and boring places and time to do something really interesting. And I think historically some organisations have struggled with that. And I think engaging with artists is a real interesting way of doing that. And then I think the benefits the other way around. I'm not saying that every piece of art has to be for social good there's nothing wrong you know you sitting in your loft painting a watercolor or whatever that might be but if you have an interest in wanting to change the world a bit and your artistic practice can help do that the world of health and well-being is an interesting area to be looking at because a lot of those people who spend a lot of time in health and well-being are in many ways discriminated against and then looked down by the rest of society and that's a really great way to challenge those preconceptions and to change a world view as well as that person's view of themselves. So there are so many benefits coming out here in, in what you guys have been involved with with the arts and health and well-being kind of services coming together from allowing people to feel visible and kind of create radical social change to creating those small and quiet places for people to explore their emotions in ways that they they hadn't had chance to to really slow down I think when they're going through something difficult so there's so much that really is important and fundamental really but often we still find it's difficult to persuade funders that this is really valuable work, that there isn't just an add-on, a nice mural at the end of the hospital ward or what have you. 
So I wonder if, um, should we come to you, Mick, first, and you could reflect a little bit on how we might articulate this benefit and how we might have some of those challenging conversations about prioritising this kind of work in funding? Yeah, and there is an inherent contradiction in this, I think, in that, you know, I, 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 as you've obviously gathered, generally believe in the benefits of arts and culture on health and well-being, and similarly ensuring good health and well-being for people working in arts and culture. But of course, you're doing it at a time, and when I say time, it's been the last 15 years of persistent cuts to funding. And that's a mixture of huge cuts to local authority funding, which of course funds social care, and a lack of growth in the NHS. So you major problems. So as somebody, you know, senior, or even somebody just running a smaller service, you're making incredibly difficult decisions about losing posts, entire services going, care homes closing. Uh, and so, you know, to suddenly say, oh, well, well that's okay because we're employing an artist for the next six months is a hard thing to say. But I think there's two things that actually help balance that. So one of which is there is increasing research and evidence that actually engagement in arts and culture is good for your health and well-being. Some of that's a bit soft, but you're seeing more and more of it, particularly if, like, in a place like Leeds, there's a real interest what's called warm data, people's stories, a focus on outcomes, not just on outputs. And I think culture sits very well into that. I think the two other things that help in terms of resourcing it is that actually, despite all the cuts and the you know, artists being really stretched, there can be a bringing together of existing resources. So you know, within the world of health and care, my God, there's a lot of buildings, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of staff to provide additional support. You know, the potential for artists to engage with that is key. And similarly, you know, in terms of there is a lot of art and culture around there and it's just about bringing that together. But the other thing, this sounds really sort of superficial or even technical, I genuinely believe if you're an artist writing a, um, an application with an Arts Council grant, having somebody help with a health and well-being perspective will help. You will see increasingly in stuff on arts funding an interest in health and well-being. Similarly, you'll see an interest in community and engagement. And there are people within the health and care system who spend a lot of time doing that stuff. So I do think saying, oh, can you help me on these few sections would help. Similarly, even in my world, in, in health and care, we also have to write a lot of bids and certainly a lot of business cases. And I think if you're doing that and you're thinking of trying to do something new and something innovative, engaging with an artist is a really good way of doing that and it will make it stand out. So just bringing people together to even just to apply for money, but also just looking at what resources we've got, you know, the resources in somewhere like here for East Street Arts, that might be a great place for you know a day service for people who are interested to come to in a very different arena from what they're doing at the same time you know we're what half a mile away from one of the biggest hospitals in europe there is a lot of space in that building there's a lot of interesting ways of thinking you that you might want to engage with that so that's where i see the argument of that bringing together and the potential outcomes really make it still worth having that focus and that investment even during really tough times mm. well i think it's about a transparency of dialogue between artists and healthcare practitioners because I, I don't think there are loads of artists sitting there going 
I'll be much better if I got a massive grant and that care home closed. Um, but I think certainly from our experience, we've been able to use a small amount of money from health to leverage more money from arts, from the Arts Council, um, to create something that is well-resourced and is more than the sum of its parts. Um, and what I really valued about Nick's approach is that it's very open and it's very transparent and it doesn't try and paper over those cracks. The conversations that we've had, you know, you've been really open and really clear and that is that saves so much time artists time so I guess I'm a little bit of a call to action um for health health practitioners is sometimes a swift no is really great as an artist that isn't being paid for their time um I think the way that you have always Nick as it as a as a whole human had one foot in health and also one foot in art and then you also engage with sports and I'm thinking about all the stuff that you've done with marching out together in Leeds United that's a tangent maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> opened up yeah it really encourages a transparency and an ongoing conversation and I think the more those conversations can have a longevity and um, the smarter we can work you know if there's we've in the past had like tiny little bits of money because they've got to the end of the year and, and a health organisation will say, well, we can't actually instate any meaningful change, ongoing, sustainable, meaningful change with this little bit of money. But that is going to help you work with 20 participants. And, and that's a sort of smart, ingenious thinking that I think really helps. Yeah, I really like that. So we should absolutely not not push for change right we should be lobbying making political change for better resourcing across both arts and health so we can do more of this mm. it has to change from from the situation it has been in the last 15 years like you say mick but there's a really good message there about within that context as well as pushing for that better resourcing finding those overlaps between and putting our resources together right and yeah. academia is a really good kind of other one of you know again it's not a bed of roses in terms of fi finances but there are other pots of money where having a partnership with a health organization or an artist or both can really release money that otherwise couldn't be released so it's kind of putting those pots together I think isn't it I'm realizing as we were saying you were kind of saying oh, the last 15 years and I was thinking that's when I graduated so I'm probably really indoctrinated to that kind of gig economy We'll make it work no matter what. And that's probably, on reflection, not such a good thing. But I guess you have to work with what's there, don't you? You do. But I think that there is something about that pooling of resources, but also that whole partnership approach. So I know you tend to use the phrase health, and actually my background is probably more care and support. But of course, what has happened across the country is, is a, a closer bringing together of those two things. So I think that's fine. And then using culture as, a, as a, a route for doing that is important. And so Leeds has got some really strong focus, foci, on bringing together health and care. And of course, doing that with arts is a real thing. But you mentioning the university is a really key thing. You know, 20 years ago when I was, was doing social care stuff, I had no engagement with Leeds University. You know, and I'm a Leeds lad. So we knew it was there. All the other universities either. But actually that shifted. And I think the universities 
started to be more outward focusing, they suddenly realised that they had one of the biggest health and care partnerships in the country on their doorstep. And we similarly realised we had these huge universities. And out of that, something came Leeds Acts, which brought together health and care and academia. And academia was a key part in development of the health and wellbeing partnership. And going back to what I was saying about the resources, and yes, the cuts have been challenging, but you're on a very different scale in the world of health and care. So Leeds is just over 1% of the entire NHS budget. Um, it's a billion pounds on health and care in Leeds. So, you know, you think compared to that funding in the world of art and culture, and even something, you know, like 77 million on care homes, you know, that sort of thing, you can just nudge those little bits to do something different. Because what's difficult is all that pot is shrinking. But I do think of that shrinking pot. What you will see in a more radical, innovative place like Leeds is a focus much more towards communities. That pot shrinks. And there's something called the life shift where you try and move the resource away from acute care into community and then into neighbourhoods, which really helps things like prevention and early intervention. So there is a cost-saving view to it. But a real big driver, I think, from the council is that it's much more of a citizen approach and using arts and culture as a way of engaging with citizens is really critical as someone like the council starts to revisit what is its actual role. And you lay that into something like social care, and I would include the health service in this, it isn't just, going back to my very first statement, about providing services, it's about supporting people to have a good life, and I think that's really critical. And and a good life has many facets to it, uh, and culture being a key element of that. I think that's it, isn't it? And it's going back to our point of seeing people as whole people, citizens, not patients. And your great point that it's not just about health, it's about health and well-being, right? Shall we bring together and end the conversation with some kind of takeaways or calls to action or something we'd like to see change or happen more? And actually... One thing that strikes me is that as an academic historian sitting here, you know, I generally lecture on all sorts of subjects in the 20th century in Britain. I don't tend to do have these conversations, but here I am having worked with Ellie for a long time. And it goes to show that if you think outside the box, if you think beyond kind of your um, kind of initial area, these collaborations can be really rich. So I think seeking out academics, historians um, from an artist's perspective and, and likewise academics seeking out health practitioners, artists, it can be a really exciting area. Um, Ellie, should we go to you? What, what would you like to see change or, or the, to be more of in this kind of area? It probably sounds a bit general, but I think curiosity. So I think the more curiosity there is from healthcare providers or people working in health and social care as to how artists work, what makes the best art, what makes that high quality thing, and curiosity from artists as to the way that, yeah, health health care operates. You know, how do these care homes work on a day to day basis? Where might my work sit beautifully? What communities are available that I didn't know existed? So I think there has to be a curiosity to become disciplinarily bilingual. Yeah, so sometimes you'll say something and I'll go, oh, I don't understand. Can you explain it again? And that the curiosity sustains us. And I think transparency. Yeah, transparent communication. Um, 
And I think it does go back to that citizen to citizen model and certainly in terms of grief and bereavement, there have been some really wonderful citizen to citizen models. I'm thinking of festivals like Pushing Up Daisies and Todmorden, where they say, you know, we're, we're all citizens that have experience of grief and end of life. So we're all qualified to talk about it. Yeah, I feel like I should be more inspirational, but I think that's that's all I've got. <laughs> no, some really great points there. And about respect and humility and respecting other people's expertise in whatever form that comes in. Mm. I like that. Mick, how about you? I suppose I have two calls on each element. So I think for the world of health and care is grow even further understanding about the benefits of cultural activity. You know, really listen to that, as I said, warm data to that evidence to people's stories, because those stories will convince you of its benefits. And then the second is that having considered that, just be a bit bolder and a bit more innovative on how you might use artists and culture as a way of meeting those outcomes. Just try and do something different and creative. And then I suppose for artists and arts organisations, one of which is that plea for artists to think about social change and their potential to do that, but particularly around health and wellbeing and how they might engage with health and wellbeing organisations to deliver that. Uh, and I suppose lastly, for probably more arts funders or bigger arts organisations, is to really have that strong focus and nurture and support artists from disabled people's communities, be that learning disability, mental health, people with long-term conditions, older people, just let's really have a chance to celebrate that potential and really see it flourish in the city. A great point to end there, of being really inclusive and accessible in, in all of the work that we all do. I like that as a point to end. So I think that just leaves us to say thank you very much. So thank you, Ellie Harrison of the Grief Series and Mick Ward. Um, now retired, but with all of your amazing background in, in this sector. Um, and it's been a really lovely conversation here at East Street Arts this morning. So thank you very uh, much. Thank you thanks for your chairing and yeah, thanks to East Street, Arts for East Street Arts for their hosting. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more information about Guild, please visit www.eaststreetarts.org.uk.